So basically working in the ICU, um, a lot of people that we see end up being on venous thrombolysis prophylaxis, which we see a lot because these patients are very ill and a lot of them don't get mobilized right away, so they're at an increased risk for getting clots. Um, we already know that there's a known benefit of administering anticoagulation to hospitalized patients for at least up to 14 days. Um, however, there's a possibility that there's an extended risk of having a venous thromboembolism even after you're discharged from the hospital, but there are currently no studies to support this. So pretty much the objective of this study was to assess the efficacy and safety of using rivaroxaban or Xarelto administered for 35 days, so after someone's discharged from the hospital, as compared with anoxaparin being administered for 10 days while they're in the hospital followed by a placebo. And the population um, of patients were 40 years of age or older, they had reduced mobility and an acute medical illness that required them to be hospitalized. So for methods of the study, this was a randomized study. It was double blind and it was also double dummy because the patients received both an injection and a tablet. They didn't know which one was placebo. It was an active comparator with anoxaparin and also a placebo and it was conducted in uh, different countries. This uh, study was sponsored by Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals and Janssen Research and Development. So the study population was randomized between December 2007 to July 2010, and 8,101 patients ended up undergoing randomization. So the inclusion and exclusion criteria was very extensive. Um, it's actually in the supplemental material. So I didn't include everything. I didn't have room to do that. But in general, everyone had to be greater than 40 years of age or older. They had to have been hospitalized for an acute medical condition and also at risk for having a VTE. Um, some risk factors might include like having active cancer, having a past history of DVD, PE, um, or pulmonary embolism, or having family history. They also had to have at least one additional risk factor, which is listed in the supplemental material. Um, they also had to have anticipated immobilization, um, as defined right there, and they couldn't have been hospitalized for more than 72 hours before they were randomized. There was quite an extensive exclusion list. Um, if you had a contraindication of taking low molecular weight heparin, you couldn't be included. Um, they tried to control for as many bleeding risks as they possibly could. Uh, people also could not have certain conditions or diseases like renal insufficiency or if you had uncontrolled high blood pressure, even though you were being treated for it. They also um, couldn't be included if they had received certain drugs or procedures such as uh, greater than two days of use of anticoagulants already, um, or if they were being treated with mechanical prophylaxis, which are compression devices that they also use in the ICU setting. So the treatment groups um, were pretty much equally 
distributed. For the rivaroxaban group, they received a subcutaneous placebo for 10 plus or minus 4 days, and then they also received rivaroxaban 10 milligrams once daily for 35 days. The enoxaparin group received sub-Q enoxaparin 40 milligrams once a day, which would be a prophylaxis dose for 10 to 14 days, and then they received an oral placebo from day 1 to 35. And the way that they followed up on the patients, everyone was supposed to receive ultrasonography of their um, legs after the last dose of steady medication or placebo, both at days 10 and at day 35. So included in the study here, they show the baseline characteristics of the patients, and they said that there were no significant differences in regards to baseline characteristics, acute medical conditions that caused them to be in the hospital, or risk factors for VTE. They didn't list the p-values, but looking at the percentages, they looked pretty even to me, and they said that there was no differences. So for the outcomes or the endpoints, they had a primary efficacy outcome that was a composite, so it encompassed several outcomes together, which included an asymptomatic proximal DVT that they found using the sonogram, um, symptomatic proximal or distal DVT, symptomatic non-fatal PE or death related to venous thromboembolism, and they looked um, both at day 10 which they determined to be a non-inferiority analysis because it was comparing Anoxaparin to Anoxaparin, which is already used. And then from day 1 to 35, it was a superiority analysis because they were comparing Rivaroxaban to placebo. Some secondary efficacy outcomes, um, they replaced VTE-related death to death from any cause at day 35 along with the other components. They also looked at the incidence of symptomatic VTE, and they also looked at composite cardiovascular death, acute MI, acute ischemic stroke, and other adverse events that didn't involve bleeding up to days 10 and 35. They also looked at safety. Obviously, with anticoagulants, the biggest risk is bleeding. So they defined the primary safety outcome to be clinically relevant bleeding, and that could be major bleeding, which they defined as greater than a 2 gram per deciliter fall in your hemoglobin or requiring greater than 2 units of um, transfusion blood cells. And they also had clinically relevant but non-major bleeding events, so that could be something like a nosebleed that you can't stop. And they listed all those also in the supplemental material. And those events couldn't have happened more than two days after the last study dose of your medication. They also analyzed the net clinical benefit or harm, which was a composite of the primary efficacy, so having like a VTE event, and also a safety outcome up to day 10 and 35. For, oops, for statistical analysis, um, they identified two populations. They had a modified intention to treat which I think represents more of a realistic population that you might see in a hospital. And then a per protocol, which were, was a group that they had certain exclusions that were taken out of the data analysis. And they did a relative risk ratio um, of incidence race, 
rates for the composite primary and secondary endpoints. A power calculation was done that said to determine 90% power of non-inferiority um, at day 10 and superiority at day 35, there had to be at least 2,876 patients per group. So that was their power calculation. So on to the results. Um, I just copied and pasted a lot of this right from the article. In terms of the primary efficacy outcome, their goal was to show at day 10 that pretty much rivaroxaban was no different than anoxaparin. So it was statistically significant for the non-inferiority study, which you would expect. You would expect them to be pretty similar. Zeralta is known um, to be a good anticoagulant. So at day 35, which was the superiority study, um, they found that in the rivaroxaban group, less people ended up having one of these outcomes. They only reported the relative risk and the p-value for the composite of all of them put together. So I didn't know if the individual components, which ones were significant versus not. So based on that, um, rivaroxaban was non-inferior to anoxaparin, but superior to placebo after discharge. So on to another outcome, which was the safety outcome. Um, they did find that rivaroxaban compared to anoxaparin at both day 10 and day 35 um, was statistically more bleeding in the rivaroxaban group, um, which you can see the relative risk and the p-value. and. They only gave the relative risk and p-values for clinically relevant bleeding, which was um, included any major bleeding, and also hemoglobin drop and um, leading to any bleeding leading to transfusion, a bleeding at critical site, and fatal major bleeding. But again, they didn't give the relative risk and p-value for each of those individual components. So. We didn't know that, just know that overall, Rivaroxaban did have more bleeding, both at day 10 and at day 35. Um, something that I thought was interesting and I'd never actually seen before was that they did a not clinical benefit or harm. So this was, again, like I said before, a composite of the primary efficacy outcome. So anyone that had any of thing happened that was considered a primary outcome and then they added on to it anyone that had a principal safety outcome, so relevant bleeding as defined by the study. And they compared day 10 and day 35. So if you look at the table that I kind of did out, um, rivaroxaban had more patients that had either a primary outcome or a primary safety outcome as compared to an parent, and that was statistically significant. However, one problem I had with that was that um, everything that was a safety outcome was considered equal. So even so someone that say died from having a v, from having <clears throat> a clot, that was considered equal to maybe someone that had like a nosebleed. 
So, so I mean, <clears throat> you know, how much is it actually harming, you know, versus the, that was something that I kind of had a problem with. So, conclusions made by the authors at day 10, rivaroxaban was non-inferior to anoxaparin in preventing the primary outcomes, which I would expect to see. At day 35, it was superior to anoxaparin and placebo in preventing primary outcomes. However, both days 10 and 35, the patients in the rivaroxaban group developed an increased risk of clinically relevant bleeding as compared to the anoxaparin group. And based on their um, secondary outcome of not clinical benefit or harm, the authors stated that um, there was no benefit of using rivaroxaban at either day 10 or at day 35. So some limitations to the study. Um, the fact that they included ultrasonography for an asymptomatic DVT was I considered a limitation because in practice, that's not done. You don't see just a random person saying, hey, I'm gonna scan your legs to see if you have a clot. That's not how it works. Usually they have symptoms of redness, swelling, pain in their leg, or they have a PE, like chest pain. So <clears throat> even though statistically it was, it showed the difference, clinically I don't think that's very relevant. And also, if you look at the primary efficacy outcomes, the asymptomatic proximal DVT is what contributes most to um, the composite primary efficacy outcome. Like, the majority of people had the asymptomatic versus asymptomatic DVT. So that was um, the major problem that I found. Also, they did not include the relative risk of p-values for the individual components of the primary efficacy and also for the primary safety outcomes. So I couldn't evaluate for myself how significant each component was. And also, um, even though they identified two populations, so the modified intent to, intention to treat and the per-protocol populations, they didn't report all the data for both of those groups. They only included the per-protocol population for the day 10 analysis, and they only included the intention-to-treat population for the day 35 analysis. So I don't know intention-to-treat at day 10 or per-protocol at day 35. So I don't know if that would have changed the outcome in any way. So for my recommendation, um, in the hospital, I wouldn't recommend using rivaroxaban because we already know that something like low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin or even fondaparinox, those already work. And I don't think we need to change something that isn't broken, especially when they controlled, tried to control so well for people that had increased bleeding risk and yet they still had significant bleeding at day 10. In terms of extended thromboprophylaxis, um, I would not recommend it either because this population is very acutely ill. They just got out of the hospital for some kind of illness, um, and they're not as healthy as, say, using Xarelto for someone that had an elective hip surgery or 
like um, a hip replacement or a knee replacement. So they're at a higher risk. And also, again, they had um, more clinically relevant bleeding at day 35. And I can't really tell if it would have prevented something like a symptomatic DVT because I don't have the data. So if I were to redesign the study, I would say get a larger population and use symptomatic DVT, PE, and um, the venous thromboembolism-related death instead of the asymptomatic, because I think that would be something that you could apply more to your practice. Does anyone have any questions? I have a couple questions. Yeah. Um, so... Something that I didn't really understand about the study, um, their whole claim in the beginning was that these patients are at an increased risk of clotting for a long period of time, which is why they studied extended rivaroxaban. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they claim it was superior to placebo. Do you have any thoughts about how they could have designed the trial differently so that they could really substantiate a claim of superiority? Um, well, I'm, it's, I'm not quite understanding, what do you mean, like, because, because they were at an increased risk. Yeah, so is there anything that they, they, they claim that these patients are at an increased risk of having an an event, right? but then they gave half of their treatment population nothing but placebo? Because there, there is no standard of care for an extended extended use of prophylaxis after getting discharged. So it's not typical to send someone home on something like low molecular weight heparin unless they are unless they did have a clot. If they get out of the, you know, the hospital and they had been on thromboprophylaxis and nothing happened then that's great and they just send them home. Um but there is no so you mean instead of comparing it to an oxaparin at day 35 um, I guess what my thought is is maybe they should have prophylaxed both groups for an extended period of time. So mm-hmm. that way you really have a comparison of are they really at risk since that was kind of their whole point and is either treatment better than, you know, one over the other versus one to placebo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But, yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I don't believe that there is that that's a protocol that's commonly used to even give people. Well, no, yeah. that, that's what the whole trial was right. looking at. But they're, you know, to substantiate mm-hmm. their claim, I just think it would have been a different trial. Right. And maybe we would be having a different discussion if it was, mm-hmm. like, really a one-on-one kind of comparison instead of just... Yeah. And then I, I did know that some people that, um, in the comments on the New England Journal article, that some... Uh, comments were made about that also. Why didn't they have them stand an exparin the entire time versus placebo? <clears throat> so I don't yeah, I think that's just what they were what they were trying to they weren't trying to compare it to something else. They were trying to see if there was a benefit at all. I think the other way oh, oh, yeah. the other way they could have done that is have both therapies stop. Mm-hmm. On day ten, and then do either another randomization to continue or not, or to split the group that had been in the rivaroxaban. Because by just looking at 
the next parent and stopping. Mm-hmm. You don't know if there's any any longer effect, like a residual the, effect. Right. I'm I not see. saying I mean from a kinetic standpoint, it's probably not very significant, but it does let you those first because if you're going to develop a DVT, it's usually not as it's not as far out as 35 days. I mean. It's closer to that discharge period from the lack of mobility, and you know you think you're getting moving. So that's the period that I would be concerned about. Yeah. Okay. Which I don't know that they design very well. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask one question, and then maybe we can find a valuable something of value with that mm-hmm. um, that value. Mm-hmm. So these patients in the hospital for 35 days. I don't. I. I I couldn't find that, and I don't know if... I'm, I'm sorry, was, what's that? Were these patients actually in the hospital for 35 days, or were they at home? Um, and was, I don't... From what I... Yeah, from what I got, they were they were not in the hospital for 35 days. That, it, didn't, it didn't actually say. They no, might... Who knows if they went... I don't know if they went to, like, a rehab facility, or... So this brings up, actually, before I get to my next point, mm-hmm. another criticism is, mm-hmm. was compliance monitored? Okay. Um, with with the group that was receiving this so for the rest of the therapy, were they home right. doing this, or were they did they have to go somewhere every day to receive the dose? Mm-hmm. So that's always a criticism, a critique of a compliance issue. It could, it could be a big deal. Yeah. If, mm-hmm. And I, they didn't report compliance, so it kind of makes me think they were not at home because how mm-hmm. would they avoid that? Well, I didn't have the supplemental piece either. That didn't, I don't know if it was in that. No, it, it didn't mention that actually. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, <laughs> Conveniently. Just looking at that, just say they were at home, this just kind of tells you that patients, after they receive 10 days of anosopan in the hospital, which is not an uncommon scenario, a mm-hmm. length stay for a medical patient perhaps. Right. We, we would not like it to be that, but right. um, they have almost a 6% chance of developing the primary outcome. Mm-hmm. And so we can say, is that important now? That's the only value I can think of that one. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And then I just have one other question. Sure. Net clinical benefit or harm, is mm-hmm. that the new way to present number needed to treat or number needed to harm, or is this a way to dredge the data? I don't know. <laughs> that was that was what I had an issue with. I had never seen it before, and I kind of I read it quickly, and I was like, oh, that's great. And then I'm like, well, yeah, what is that exactly? So I guess... What calculate the number needed to treat? Yes, actually, Chris helped me to calculate it. Yeah, Um, the number needed. Right. So the number needed to harm was sixty-two. So that was taking the um, subtracting the the risks in the patients that had a safety that had a safety outcome. Um, So that so for. Every you need you would have to treat sixty two patients before you would have a clin- like a, a bleed, a, a bleed, bleed or a death. Yeah, yeah, in terms of their in terms of their how they defined it. So, <laughs> yeah, a bleed or a death. Yeah, so that was a that was like what I was saying an issue I kind of had about the net clinical benefit or harm. Like, how can you say that um, someone that died? You know, how is that on the same level as someone that maybe just needed to get a, a transfusion but ended up being okay, kind of a thing? So those were on the same, kind of on the same level because it was just all numbers of who had an incident. So that was my 
thing. Did you figure out how many you needed to treat? Um, it, I did it upstairs a second ago. I think it was 77. Okay. I'm thinking. I think that's what it was. I'd have to re- do it right now. No, that's mentally yes. that's kind of what I came to. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it's important to consider your criticism too. Your number needed to treat includes that composite in, um, mm-hmm. endpoint that also has all those patients that ha- were asymptomatic. Right. So, so your number needed to treat to prevent asymptomatic would be uh, presumably even lower. You can't even calculate it because they didn't no. give you a p value for that. So, exactly. So. Coming back to the, because I struggled too with the outcome, mm-hmm. the net clinical benefit or harm, mm-hmm. and so I appreciated what you did in the the table. Mm-hmm. So just think logically through that though. If we're adding both the positive and negative outcomes together for a single outcome, then I'm not sure where I'm at in the end because they, right. to me you would have to. <laughs> yeah. To the negative. I don't know. Maybe well, I'm thinking about it wrong. I don't. I don't have an I, answer. I thought of it. I went. Why would you add that? Right. I thought of it all as those are all negative outcomes. Having someone developing a DVT is a negative outcome. Someone developing a bleed is a negative outcome. Okay. So that's how I thought of it. They were adding those together. So they were. Right, and they ended up that. So if you're looking like 216 in the river axman ended up having those negative versus 151. But I don't know how many of each of those is a bleed versus a... Yeah. That's the thing. Versus like a DVT. Leave it to bear. Talk a little bit about how you had to evaluate the, um, the exclusion criteria, what you had to do to, uh, to figure that out. So looking at the exclusion criteria, some of them definitely made sense. Obviously, you don't want to give an experiment to someone who's allergic to it or has had hit or something like that. Um, but in terms of the bleeding risk criteria, a lot of the people that we see, like in the ICU, they wanted to exclude people that had had a major surgery or a biopsy um, or a trauma within six weeks before randomization. And I would think that a a lot of people that we would see... It's actually right here, but common diseases or conditions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of people that we would see would have those. Um, <laughs> um, what, what, what's wrong with that, though? What, go on. I want to hear about oh. why, why is that bad to exclude? Because then you're not getting... You're, the, um, it's not a similar population to what you would be treating. That's what I'm so thinking. You, you think the medical population would be similar to those who just had major surgery? Is, I just want to understand. Yeah, yeah. So think about those patients who had major surgery. What happened to them six weeks ago? What were they on? What medication? Most likely, if they're treated right. Yeah, then they were on. They were on an oxygen. An oxygen. Or, 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 or something. Right. They had major ortho surgery. Okay. They could be on it for up to four weeks. Even. Mm-hmm. So that That's gets even closer to the study time. Mm-hmm. And where did you have to go to, like, you had to dig to find this information? Yeah, so uh, these are, this was all supplemental. It wasn't in the article, which, you know, so if you wanted to truly assess the article, you had to do an extra step. You couldn't just read the article. So, um, you know, that was, that was the other thing also. How long is it? Is that why they didn't include it? Is it like 20 pages long? Well, this is, this is the exclusion, inclusion, exclusion, um, 
they included what was defined as the, the bleeding events. It, it's... I know, right? So it's about uh, 12 pages. A lot of it's tables. Um, to publish, there's usually a limit on how many tables and graphs that you can provide. I don't know. what It depends on the journal. And there is a page limit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Think about it. They're all about the same number of pages. If you're gonna if you're gonna evaluate evaluate like, okay, this population, can I apply it to the population that I care for? You've gotta have that information. Right. And then uh, another way that you can if you're looking at an article and you suspect um, that maybe the, the criteria were too narrow. Uh, and that maybe it, uh, it wouldn't apply to your population. And a couple things that you can look at that on, on page 517, that big um, chart that they have there about how many patients were enrolled. Um, yeah. Just, I, I'm seeing this more and more on journal articles. There's a box missing, and that's the box above 8,428 patients enrolled. Right. That's how many were screened. Mm-hmm. We have no idea. So if you flip back the first um, part under results on 516, from December 2007 to July 2010, 8,000 patients enrolled at 500 sites in 52 countries. So that's five per site per year is all that they were able to enroll. Uh, which, uh, to me, that's like a slow enrollment process, which would indicate very restrictive criteria. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and so that's mm-hmm. how I kind of match that up. Mm-hmm. And I think that bounces back against their idea that you would use this in a non-ambulatory uh, medical uh, prophylaxis of DBT. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And here exactly. they are restricting their study to just a couple. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very good point, Joe. Definitely. I had a question, too. Because um, you talked about how you would redesign the study mm-hmm. and basically take out all of the outcomes that you didn't like. So based on the results for the outcomes that you were concerned about, would it be feasible to have a larger study? Like thinking about the mm-hmm. numbers they use in this study, maybe how many numbers would they need in a larger study to show? To show uh, a difference? Yeah. Um, well, let's see. <laughs> Only seven people that received Rivaroxaban had a symptomatic DVT in six in the anoxaparin group. Um, I'm really not sure. I'm not sure how to... <laughs> a lot, yeah. That's what I mean. Like, I'm not sure. I'm like, is it like a, yeah, like a exponential amount more versus like a, a double or triple amount more? I don't know. But yeah, it would be a lot. Uh-huh. How many? Yeah. It's like the double-edged sword of your composite endpoint. Mm-hmm. I can do a smaller study, but uh, then again, what I include in the composite is also very important. Mm-hmm. Whether I put junk in there or whether I put something that's meaningful to somebody. Right. Exactly. So. So how would you change the inclusion criteria then in, in the study that you're redesigning? Um. The inclusion criteria that makes sense versus exclusion criteria. <laughs> either way. Um, either way. Either way. Um, I would probably 
maybe not be as um, strict in terms of the bleeding risk because like we were talking about before like houses major surgery biopsy um, a lot of people are going to have that um, I guess I didn't really think about specific things because a lot of a lot of them do they make sense you don't want, like it says, history of hemorrhagic stroke. You don't want someone stroking out and <laughs> bleeding out. So that makes sense. Um, like for some, like known HIV infection, I don't really understand why that was in there, I guess. Um, inter severe renal insufficiency septic shock and need for vasopressors when actually people on vasopressors are at increased risk of getting VTE so I think that they should they should have been included so maybe just kind of reevaluating um, the exclusion criteria because like Joel was saying that's like five people per site that's so strict you know that seems like very narrow window so maybe a way to allow more people into the into the study. Um, I'm not sure which of these exclusion criteria or excluded the most amount of people. So maybe if there was something like that, like how many people were excluded because of this specific reason, maybe look at that and then try to change it based on that. That's in um, the missing box, too. Yeah, like the missing box, box. yeah. <laughs> that box should say we screened 20,000 patients, mm -hmm. we excluded uh, 200 because they had HIV, we excluded 500 right. because they had a history of alcohol use. It should all be there so that then you can, uh, you know, answer these questions. Right, like there. decide, you know, is right. that really relevant? Like, does it matter? Yeah, exactly. What about the the drugs that were excluded? What could you tell us about those? Were they listed? Um, not that's that was another thing they didn't list. They just said in general prophylactic use of anticoagulants. So that could have been maybe warfarin. That could have been think about experience. Do you guys know that anybody? Rivaroxaban. 3A4, yep, that was another, that was another exclusion. I was thinking mm -hmm. that. Yeah, so that was another exclusion criteria, strong 3A4 inhibitor use. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's right here, ketoconazole protease inhibitors. Um, so that was another exclusion criteria, which, which I, I, I do in a way understand because you don't, I mean, you wouldn't, you'd be careful about prescribing that drug to that person, so. Good. So based on the fact that there's no difference, and I don't remember the cost difference between Lovinox and Rivaroxaban off the top of my we talked about it earlier. Um, so Lovinox is generically so, available, right. so that probably... So you're... It's still expensive. So you're in the ICU, and so if, there's, if they're considered equivalent based on their outcomes... You said you wouldn't. Why wouldn't you choose rivaroxaban for that population for DVT prophylaxis in the medically ill? Because they still had more significant bleeding at day 10 um, compared to the anoxaparin group. And then kind of like I was 
I was saying we already know that Lovenox works. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't looked at cost effectiveness, but Zeralto does not have a generic, and I don't know how it's in, how many formularies it's included on in different. If you'd have to try and go through P and T to get it included on your formulary, um, and if you already have an oxaparin and there's already protocol for say someone does get hit, there's you already have something in place for that, then I don't see why you would change it. Okay. What other factor might influence? Lynn's actually has been asking about it. Like, what were some of those exclusion factors? Um, do you want me to read them off? No, like from a medication standpoint. Oh, um, severe renal insufficiency was one which I know Zeralta is renally dosed. Um, I don't know what severe to them means. Yeah, there was no, like, there were people with a creatinine clearance less than 30, but I don't know how many were, say, less than 15 versus... So they didn't use creatinine clearance. I'm just waiting for that, that study yeah. to come out that uses MDR to define Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, and they're getting to a different The other study. thing I'm thinking about is, from a hospital administration standpoint, and I think about it, it's been really a big challenge over many years to get people to think about DVT prophylaxis and to incorporate that into the standard of care to be able to get to that point. And if you introduce a drug that, um, well, in Lomonox, you can do some renal dosing too with the right. prophylaxis, but mm-hmm. you've now got a drug with drug interactions and you've got all these things that it's not as easy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes from a quality measure standpoint, what's best for our patients is sometimes you have to make it easy. Mm-hmm. And for all the other reasons too, but so it works, but with these exclusions. Like right. you have to have a niche population. And what I'm sure Joe wants to do when he walks into the ICU is just go, oh, and that's low. And be, and not try to figure out what all the, I mean, and that's what the docs want too. Exactly. Not, you know, it's, it's about trying to do the best thing and make it really easy for caregivers to do the right thing for their patients. Yeah. And it may not be that easy with the mm-hmm. I think one thing that I would worry about is um, documentation of why they're on the because I think providers are very clear on what the dosing for anoxaparin is. So they'll say, oh, there's prophylactic dosing, we don't need that anymore. But at discharge, I'm not sure why Reverend has started. Mm-hmm. It could just, you know, carry on. You see him three months later and they're still on it. Yeah. Hopefully the dose will give you a clue, right? Good. Okay. But if, uh, <sighs> it's still fairly new. I know providers aren't familiar with it. Mm-hmm. It's not oral anticoagulant. you got to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> it's once insurance covers it. Right. That's another thing. That would be the thing. Yeah, that would be the thing. That is definitely something. You had a lot of... One thing I was wondering, and you might have said it, and I was just not thinking and listening. Is this drug going to receive an FDA indication for this? For prophylaxis? Yes, for medical prophylaxis. Is this drug going to get it? I'm not saying that it's superior, equal, or not, or whatever. Right, I'm just saying they were angling for an indication. Are they going to get that, do you suppose? Um, I don't know. I know it can be used for secondary prevention. So, like, if you haven't had a DVT, you can use it. So that's prophylactic in terms of secondary prevention of another um, but I I think that's what they're trying to do. Based on this, I wouldn't do it. Then you asked, 
eight, well, AFAB and right. um, and prophylaxis for certain populations. Um, for a certain population of patients, or those that have had stroke, possibly. <laughs> oh uh, yes, orthopedic, orthopedic surgery. Yeah, for so um, knee yes, or knee or hip replacement. But they also mentioned, um, like they didn't delve into, but in general, those tend to be healthier patients. You know, a little younger maybe. Um, that's sometimes. Not, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> I said, I said yeah, possibly. Um, you know, that's more. It's not an emergency surgery. So yeah, yeah. So this is really like pushing for an extension on that yeah. indication, mm-hmm. so not for post post op mm-hmm. prophylaxis anymore. Right. That's why I feel they they went to fifty different countries for three years with umpteen millions of dollars. Just it wasn't out of good spirit. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's why I was also kind of surprised because I'm like, oh, it's, you know, it's funded by Bayer and Janssen. I'm like, oh, you know, they're trying to get something out. But then they did, they admitted to their, you know, the limitations like that, you know, so. In a hidden document. Oh. <laughs> no, in a hidden document. <laughs> 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 yeah. Unless it's going to a patient. I know. Yeah. Um, and then they did that. They said right in the article, there's no clinical benefit when they use that, you know, that clinic. I was like, oh, I was just kind of surprised that they, you know, said that, so. Do you guys know the why we care about proximal versus distal DVT and what, what they're talking about? Do you Well, dis- do you know? distal is more, like, in your calf. Yeah. Um, and proximal is, you know, higher up. Um, I'm not sure if there's a higher risk of if you have proximal of it, of it resulting yes, in a PE exactly. versus, okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, versus, yeah, versus a distal. So we see diagnosis of caffeine DVTs, and oftentimes we don't do anything about those. Mm-hmm. We don't treat them. We keep them on a prophylactic dose. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs>